Brett McKay here, and welcome to another edition of the Art of Manliness podcast. In the 19th century, the source of the Nile River remained one of the greatest mysteries of geographic exploration. The story of how the British eventually found it is one of adventure, danger, and bravery, but also of arrogance, envy, and resentment. Here to offer some snapshots from this dramatic expedition is Candace Millard, author of River of the Gods, Genius, Courage, and Betrayal in the Search for the Source of the Nile. Today on the show, Candace shares how two men who are very much opposites, Richard Francis Burton and John Hanning Speak, venture together on two years-long expeditions to locate the source of the longest and most legendary river in the world, the harrowing obstacles they faced in their quest, and how their partnership devolved into a bitter rivalry. Along the way, we discuss what made Burton such a compelling character, why we remember his name but not Speaks, and the African guide who is the unheralded hero and the achievements of both men. After the show's over, check out our show notes at awim.is slash river. All right, Candice Millard, welcome back to the show. Thanks so much for having me. So you got a new book out called River of the Gods. It's all about the exploration for the source of the Nile River. How did you discover this story? And when did you realize there, there might be a bigger story here besides just geographic exploration? I first heard this basic story about 20 years ago, and I was just fascinated by these two extremely different men and the story of their friendship and the betrayal of that friendship. And it stayed with me all these years. I've been working at National Geographic at that time. In the meantime, written, you know, different books, but I kept coming back to the story, but I didn't want to just tell another story about two Europeans going into Africa and quote unquote discovering something. I wanted to really understand how these expeditions worked and why there was this incredible fascination with this part of the world. And when I was doing some research, I found Sidi Mubarak Bombay, who became the the heart and really the hero of the story. And then I was hooked. Yeah, what I loved about this story is that there's stories within the story. There's like lots of stories and you, and you explore them all. It's sort of like a river, right? You find these little tributaries and you, you go off and you, you see, it gives you a bigger picture of what was going on. Yeah, that's true. And that always happens with the best story. So it takes me a lot of time, a lot of research before I even commit to writing a book on a, on a certain subject. And it has to have those many layers. And this certainly did. Okay, so the the exploration for the source of the Nile was going on like 1830s, 1840s, 1850s. What was going on in Europe at the time that kickstarted? It was like there was an obsession, like there was an obsession in discovering the source of the Nile. What 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 happened? That's right. So it used to be that Europeans were obsessed with Rome and Greece and they taught their children and the priests and everyone was steeped in learning those languages and learning that history. But then at the very end of the 1700s in 1798, the French were in Alexandria and they found the Rosetta Stone. And then the, they were fighting with Britain at that time. Britain wanted it. Britain, all, every European country then was obsessed with this, this even older and even richer civilization. And so it just set off this frenzy in art and architecture and fashion. And everyone was fascinated with Egypt as really we still are today. And so you can't have Egypt without the Nile, right? The longest, most storied river in the world. And, but, but, but people have been trying to find the source of the Nile for thousands of years, you know, ancient philosophers, Egyptian kings, but they kept trying to 
find it by going by ascending the river, starting at the Mediterranean Sea and then going south. But they quickly hit all of these swamps and things and they never got anywhere near. So it was still this incredible mystery, really one of the greatest mysteries in the history of human exploration. And so it was finally in the 1830s with the Royal Geographical Society getting involved, they thought, okay, this is our moment. We're going to try to find it. And was there like national pride at stake? I mean, were like the French and the British fighting each other on this? Absolutely. Absolutely. Everyone wanted they wanted the 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 cultural claim right they wanted they it was all about taking right taking effort taking the land taking the history and the culture and you know then having the bragging rights to that and so so they were all racing each other and so that was something that they were thinking about not only the dangers that they would face and that and being able to solve this ancient mystery but also getting there first Okay, so one of the individuals that played a big role in a European discovering the source of the Nile was Richard Francis Burton. This guy, you couldn't make this guy up. Um, <laughs> tell us about his life before he went on this expedition to start looking for the Nile, source of the Nile. I mean, like, what was his life like? What was he doing? What was his personality like? Give kind of a thumbnail sketch of him. Yeah, he was one of these incredibly brilliant, fascinating, very deeply flawed characters. So he was born in England, but he was always his whole life considered an outsider because he, before he was a year old, he moved to France and his father moved him and his brother and sister from country to country. He was in Italy, he was in Spain, he was in Greece and moving and moving each year, he moved 13 times before he was 18 years old. And each point he would pick up the language and pick up the culture. He was just a sponge, but he also grew up to be very, an angry, angry kid. He was always fighting. He was fighting at school. He was fighting with his tutors. He was just fighting for his place in the world. He felt like he really didn't fit in anywhere, but he again was brilliant. I mean, he, he ended up writing dozens of books poetry, essays, translations, books about his travels. He, he, he ended up speaking more than 25 different languages, plus another several dialects. He became the first Englishman to enter Mecca disguised as a Muslim because his Arabic was so good and he knew the Muslim religion so well, he, he could recite a quarter of the Quran by heart. But he was one of these people who studied and was fascinated by every culture and every religion, but respected none. Yeah, he was uh, deeply not religious. Right. And yeah, but that was amazing. Like the story of him sneaking into Mecca was was crazy uh, as, that he was able to do that as a European. Right, right. And, you know, again, again, he, he was fascinated with Islam and, and studied a lot, but obviously it's a forbidden city for a reason. And, and he, you know, this, this, this trip was acknowledging that what was, was sort of most sacred to this religion and completely disrespecting it. But that was his MO. I mean, he was kind of a serial and, you know, equal opportunity offender. He just kind of didn't care. And so that's really, again, one of the things that made him an outsider. He was also fascinated by sexual practices in every single culture. And he wrote about those as well, which as you might imagine, was very alarming to British Victorians. So, and, and, and another thing about him, he, you know, Britons would often say he doesn't even look British. You know, he's got this black hair and these black mesmerizing eyes. And 
even his teeth, people wrote about his teeth. Bram Stoker, who would go on to write Dracula, met Burton before he wrote Dracula and was mesmerized by him. He was just obsessed with him. And, and reading his descriptions are fascinating. And he even writes about watching Burton as he's talking and looking at his teeth that gleamed like a dagger. So many people think he might've been an inspiration for Dracula. Okay. So when did Burton get the idea that he would start hunting for the source of the Nile? So after he um, went to Mecca, he, he was always, he always sort of fell into this depression after he had some great triumph. So unlike most people who, who they just want to kind of coast on that afterglow, right, of some, of some great success, Burton always fell into a depression because he was happiest and most energized when he had a challenge. He needed something to really challenge him. And again, this was the heart and soul of exploration. This is the mystery everyone wanted to solve at that time. So of course, he thought no one better than himself. And he already had a relationship with the Royal Geographical Society. They've been very interested in his trip to Mecca. And even though, again, he's this outsider and they they kind of hold him at arm's length, he obviously was the most experienced guy, the, the, the most obvious choice to lead an expedition to search for the source of the Nile. Okay, so Burden starts, he gets pointed for the job, like you're going to be the guy. So he starts putting together a team. It was sort of like, it reminded me of... Uh, uh, what's the George Clooney movie? Ocean's Eleven, right? He's trying uh-huh. to like, he's, <laughs> right. it's a heist here. Right. Um, and he, he started picking these guys because he, he knew they were good at these different things. He ended up picking this one guy called John Hanning Speak that would end up being a source of a lot of just trouble for the rest of his life. How did this guy Speak end up on Burton's team? And then tell us about Speak. So Burton had chosen three men he knew well and and really respected. They were highly skilled and and he trusted them and he liked them personally. And so he went to Aden, which is right across. He was going to begin in Somaliland. So he went to Aden where there was a British outpost and was, you know, preparing and he was waiting for, for one more man from his team. And the, the boat that was supposed to bring that man instead brought news of the, of his death and Burton's really devastated somebody he really cared about and and he doesn't know he's like here we're ready we've raised this money we've been given this incredible opportunity and we don't have this other guy well john hanning speak was so he was burton's opposite in every way he was blonde and blue-eyed he was born into the aristocracy he was a lieutenant in the british army he he was in india at that time he loved to hunt and so he was on leave from the army and he wanted to go to Africa to hunt. He wanted to go into to Somalia. And when he got to Aden, the, the person in the British consul who was there refused to let him go. He said, it's too dangerous. But he kept trying and kept trying. And the guy said, okay, finally, just leave me alone. Why don't you talk to Burton? Maybe he'll let you go on this expedition. And he talked to Burton, speak did. And Burton had real hesitations. You know, First of all, he was concerned because speak didn't have any knowledge of the people in East Africa, their traditions, their language. He didn't speak any language. He spoke a little Anglo-Hindustani, but that was it. And he didn't seem to have any interest in it either. He just wanted to hunt. But Burton felt sorry for him. You know, he thought, you know, this guy is going to go and he's going to die. He's going to be killed. He's not going to survive. I'll give him a chance. And so he said, okay, you can come with us. So just get our bearings here. This is about 18, what year is this? 1850? 
yeah, this is 1854 when they Eight, met. 1854. Speak, he's also a young guy. He's like in his 20s, right? That's right. So he's about six years younger than Burton. Burton's in his 30s and, and Speak's in his 20s. Yeah. And so Burton, he kind of said like, ah, you know, I kind of, I, I didn't want to have him on there, but you said, I felt sorry for him. I'll let him come along. When did Burton realize that Speak was going was gonna to be a liability for him? He didn't really realize for a long time, you know, Burton's one of these people, I think often in history, when you have somebody who's really extraordinarily, I mean, he's sort of genius level, extraordinarily smart, extraordinarily skilled and accomplished, he attracts envy that they're not really aware of. And that can be an extremely, extremely dangerous thing because admiration can quickly turn to envy, can quickly turn to resentment, can quickly turn to hate. And that's what happened here. You know, Burton was kind of not paying attention to Speak, which Speak hated more than anything. You know, Speak on the outside seemed sort of modest and quiet, but inside he really burned with this ambition. And he all along wanted to be the leader of the of the expedition, not have 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 Burton be the leader. He wanted to lead it. He wanted the 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 glory and the accomplishment. But Burton was unaware of it. He was focused on this expedition and this and this challenge ahead of him. And so it would take years and many things along the way sort of built up offenses that he he didn't realize that he had caused and speaks kind of keeping tally and it doesn't come out until much later. So they, the expedition, they, it happened in phases. So this first expedition they went on, something happened that really, really started sowing the resentment with Speak. They almost, they almost both died. Tell us about this experience. I mean, you do such a great job describing it, but kind of give us a picture, like what happened in this, this attack? And then how did that sort of really sow the seeds for this resentment that Speak uh, had against Burton? So they were going to begin in Somalia and then set out into the interior of East Africa. It was believed that there there might be some enormous sort of inland sea. And so they started in Berbera right on the coast. And again, you know, these are people that this wider story is one of sort of arrogance and ignorance. These are people going into a land to again, quote unquote, discover something where people have lived for. 100,000 or more years, right? And millions of people. And of course, these people are going to defend themselves. So it's going to be dangerous. And so one night they're, they're just in their tents, they're sleeping and they are attacked by hundreds of Somali. And one of the men is killed. Again, one of, one of Burton's good friends. Speak is, is stabbed 11 times and Burton has a javelin thrust through his jaw from cheek to cheek, uh, which leaves this, you know, long, jagged scar on his face for the rest of his life. But in the midst of this attack, at one point, Speak starts to leave the tent and then, and then he steps back. And Burton just sort of carelessly says, don't step back. They'll think you, that you're retreating. And, but to, to Speak, this is the worst thing anyone could say to him because he thinks in his mind that Burton is calling him a coward and that he takes great pride in being incredibly tough, incredibly brave. And so he is furious, but he doesn't say anything to Burton and Burton has no idea. I mean, he's, they're all fighting for their, for their lives. And this ends the expedition and they have to go back to England to regroup. And again, Burton has no idea, but, but Speak is 
is enraged and he's he's holding this sort of in his heart against Burton. Yeah, so they go back to to London, lick their wounds and kind of figure out regroup and plan again. Yeah, but as you said, during this time, Speak really started nurturing his resentment towards Burton. He tried to change the story of what happened and kind of saying, "Yeah, I was I was the guy. Burton <laughs> he right. wasn't doing anything." <laughs> Right, right. He's saying, you know, he's talking about the orders that he gave and the decisions that he made. And and yeah, this becomes a theme. But, but again, Burton is completely unaware of it. So then the Crimean War by that time is going on and they both go to take part to, to a limited degree in the Crimean War. And then Burton decides, I'm going to go back. I'm going to go back to East Africa and the Royal Geographical Society is going to fund another expedition for him and he needs a second in command and against his best judgment, even though, again, he is completely clueless about how Speak feels about him, but he knows that they don't really get along that well and that Speak doesn't really have as many skills as he thinks he should. But he says, he he's like, look, he nearly died the last time. We all lost a lot of our, our investment, financial investment as well. Um, he felt bad about that. So he said, you know, he invited him to come along and speak accepted. Well, during this interlude period, Burton had a romance. This, this is another one of those cool little stories that happened. It is, it was a romantic romance, like capital R romantic <laughs> with this woman named Isabel Arundel. Tell us about the relationship. And cause this, I thought this was really kind of, it really spoke to uh, how, like, so that romantic period that people were experiencing in Europe. So tell us about that relationship. Well, you know, it's interesting. It seems like Burton always attracted to him people who were his complete opposite. So Isabel was as well um, in a different way. So Isabel was also born into the aristocracy, but the, she was Catholic. And so while Burton had this sort of nomads, you know, growing up, he moving from place to place, he was kind of on his own, kind of raised himself. Um, she was born to this very, very strict and controlling world where, you know, literally she got to see her parents in the evening standing next to them to say goodnight. You know, it was was nannies and boarding schools and, but, and very controlled. And her mother especially was extremely controlling and wanted to choose who, who Isabel would marry. But Isabel dreamed of a completely different life. You know, she wanted adventure. She wanted freedom, which you just couldn't have as a Victorian woman in Great Britain. And so she said that she wanted to be a man. She said, I wish I were a man, but if I can't be a man, I want to be Richard Burton's wife. So she she meets him when she's just 19 years old. It's her first trip outside of England. And they meet in Europe and she is immediately captivated by him. He's sort of everything she wishes she could be, right? He has this incredibly wild and adventurous life and he looks dangerous <laughs> and exciting. And so she immediately falls in love with him, but she's he's 10 years older than than she is and obviously swept up in this world and the in the in all of his own personal ambitions. And so they kind of meet again and again over over six years, again and again, until finally he comes back and from Africa and he proposes to her. And it's everything she could possibly dream of. The only problem is 
her mother says, absolutely not. Literally any man in the universe, but Richard Burton, because he's such a controversial figure and he has no money and he has no family name. And so he's, he is everything Isabel wants and everything her mother does not. No, I loved Isabel. I loved she was, um, she started, she took fencing lessons and they're like, why are you taking <laughs> fencing lessons? Like, well, I got to know how to defend myself when I'm with Richard on adventures. Right. I, I liked it a lot. I mean, what, what drew Burton to her? You know, I think, well, for one thing, I mean, I, she was beautiful. She was young and she was willing to live this really crazy life that not many Victorian women would want. You know, I mean, it was not an easy life. And again, he really he didn't have any money, he didn't really have any obvious way to support them, certainly not in the way that she had become accustomed to. But she was also completely obsessed with him. You know, she was absolutely devoted to him. So what was important to her was her religion and Richard Burton, and she would do anything for him. And so she, like you said, she learned how to fence. She, she learned how to cook. She learned how to edit because that he wanted, you know, someone who could edit all of his manuscripts and things. And she also became an incredibly gifted writer. She was Really, she brought, she ended up writing some of her own books and she, and of course, she wrote an autobiography or a, I'm sorry, a biography of, of her husband, which is fascinating and beautifully written. We're going to take a quick break for your words from our sponsors. And now back to the show. Okay. So uh, he has this romance with, with Isabel. He goes on the second expedition to look for the source of the Nile. He brings along Speak again unaware that speak is just just harboring this resentment towards them tell us you mentioned a character that I, I i just i fell in love with when i was reading about it bombay this bombay like came in clutch all the time <laughs> during their expeditions tell us about him so city mubarak bombay had been kidnapped as a child from his village in east africa and dragged to the coast, um, taken to Zanzibar, where he'd been sold for cloth in the infamous slave markets there. And he had been taken to Western India, where he had lived enslaved for 20 years until the man who owned him died and he was given his freedom. And he made his way back to East Africa and he met Burton and Speak there. So when Burton and Speak Go. It's now 1856. They're on their expedition. They're going to try again, and they meet. They're they're hiring porters and guides and things, and they meet City Mubarak Bombay. And it's really interesting to me because both men immediately knew if they didn't hire anyone else, they had to hire Bombay. And you know, he he spoke many languages. He was incredibly hardworking, incredibly trustworthy. He was very cheerful and all everything that he did. But what, what's most astonishing to me is that even after everything that he had endured, all the loss, all the, this unbelievable tragedy that he had survived, he had the softest of hearts. You know, he was incredibly kind, incredibly generous. And that is obvious. You know, it was obvious to these men the moment they met him. And this ended up being true in, in expedition after expedition after expedition. He would spend his life helping to map his part of the world. And yeah, he he quickly became the heart and really the hero of, of this expedition. Yeah. One of the problems that 
Burton had and, and Speak had is like sometimes the porters are just abandoned. They just like in the middle leave. But Bombay never did. And also Bombay did a great job of sort of, I guess, managing the relationships between the porters and Burton mm-hmm. and Speak. Yeah, he did. And and look, it's understandable why these men would desert the expedition, you know, is so they were, you know, incredible. Burton and Speak nearly died multiple times. And it was never clear like how, how they were going to pay their porters. And they never had enough porters. They never had enough donkeys. And the donkeys were always running off too or dying. And they had so much equipment. And they, you know, people have to understand, I mean, this these are vast expanses that they're crossing. So they would spend years there and they would cross thousands of miles and it was incredibly varied terrain. And they were, you know, at one point Burton has such severe malaria. He was paralyzed. He could not walk for nearly a year. And so they had to carry him with, uh, with everything else too. Both men and many of the, and, and sometimes Bombay and some of the other people, they often would be blinded. They would get infections and things for, for months. They, they couldn't see when they're trying to go through. So they, it's, it's, and again, they're going through land that no one has invited them into and it's potentially dangerous. People don't know. I mean, it could be immediately dangerous and it certainly was in the long term very, very dangerous for these people on this land. So um, it's a difficult, difficult expedition. And so it's no wonder people left. Right. Yeah. That's the, when I read it, it's like, this sounds awful. I don't know why anyone would want to go explore <laughs> in the eight, 19th century. <laughs> I mean, yeah, as you said, like most of the time they were just like, they were sick pretty much all the, both Burton, like everyone was sick. Burton went paralyzed. Uh, Speak lost his vision. He also lost his hearing. He got a bug stuck in his ear. Right, right. Yeah, that was a horrible, uh, it was just one of these crazy things where he's, one night there's a, a huge storm and it blows down his tent. And so, and it's pitch black. So he lights a candle to try to set his tent back up, but it tracks this horde of beetles. All these beetles descend on him and fill the tent and he's flailing around trying to get rid of them and he can't. And so he finally gives gives up and he lies down to just try to sleep and he feels one of the beetles climbing into his ear and it he can't get it out and it just keeps burrowing deeper and deeper and deeper and you know he tries everything he can think of he tries like butter and oil and nothing is working and so finally out of desperation he takes a pen knife and he jabs it into his ear and he he kills the beetle and like for weeks after bits of the beetle like a wing or a leg you know comes out in his in his earwax but unfortunately he also deafens himself in that ear for the rest of his life okay so they're on this exploration they finally arrive to a, this large lake it's lake probably on its pronunciation tanganyika yes tanganyika tanganyika uh-huh. um and burton thought hey this is it this could, i think this is the source of the nile but he discovered it wasn't. When did he figure out that this wasn't the source? Well, not for a while. I mean, he still held on hope for a long time. So Lake Tanganyika is one of the largest and deepest lakes in the world. It's absolutely enormous. I was I was on this lake when I did research for this book. And you feel like you're and on an ocean, it's just, it's, it's, it's really, it's, it's sort of narrow and very, very long. And I was on it one night when there had been a big storm and the water was incredibly rough. And we were just in an open wooden boat, you know, and we were 
tipping like insane, like almost completely tipping over many, many times. And it's also filled with crocodiles. So I was terrified, but it did seem like this and it's in the right area. You know, it's, it's, it's in what is today um, Western Tanzania. And as a side note, it's also the, the site of Gombe, which is Jane Goodall's research institute there on the lake. But, um, but so the problem is they got there, they didn't have boats, they were trying to find um, boats that they could um, rent or borrow, and they, they're sicker and sicker and they're running out of supplies. And finally, they just realized they can't stay any longer. They, they, they have to start back for the coast, but they haven't had a chance to circumnavigate it. They haven't a chance to do run all the scientific tests that they need to run. And they haven't seen, they haven't, you know, gotten to, they think it's going to be in the Northern reaches and they haven't been able to really get there to see if, you know, a Nile sized river is running out. Well, at this point too, Speak decided, you know, Burton was sick. He kind of needed to hold up for a little bit and recover. So Speak said, Hey, I'm going to go split off and go check something else out. Why did Speak decide to do that? So at first, as I said, they had thought that there was was one enormous lake in the middle of um, East Africa. But when they get there and they start talking to people who live there and they find out actually there are three enormous lakes and they talk to a guy who's like, you know, if you really want to see a big lake, you should go north. And that is the Nyanza. And so Speak really wants to do that. But Burton, again, is still, he, he at this point, he's still paralyzed. He's really ill. He thinks they don't have enough supplies for it. And he says, let's just wait. We'll get back to the coast. We'll regroup. And then we'll, and then we'll try. And Speak says, you know what? When we're in, they're in um, Kaze, which is now Tabora, which was this big sort of trading post. He says, while we're here, why don't you recover, work on things? You know, they're all, everything was falling apart. Like their clothes were in shreds. Everything was falling apart at this point. It's like, why don't you work on that? And I'll take Bombay because he didn't want to go anywhere without Bombay and a smaller legion. And I'll see if I can go to this, this Nyanza. And Burton is kind of annoyed with him at this point anyway. And he's like, great. Why don't you do that? But it was, it would turn out to be the worst mistake of his life because Speak did go to the Nyanza and the Nyanza is the source of the White Nile. But the thing is, okay, Speak was convinced that it was it, but he really didn't know. No, no, he was only there for a couple of days. He didn't get anywhere near the north. He was in the southern part. And it, it I mean, this, this, this lake, it's the, it's the largest lake in Africa. It's the second largest freshwater lake in the world. It's absolutely mind-bendingly enormous. And he wasn't anywhere near the northern reaches, which is where the Nile comes out of it. But he just said he had a feeling. He just knew that this was a source. And so part of it is gumption. You know, he did go. Part of it is just luck. It just turned out that he was right, but he, he had absolutely no proof. So, okay. They, so uh, speaks like, yeah, I found it. Uh, Burton's like, I don't know. Maybe you don't have any proof about it. They go home and then speak started doing these maneuvers to make sure that he got sole credit for discovering the source of the Nile. Like what did, what, what did he do? That's right. So they get back to Zanzibar and Speak is really, really eager to get back to England and Burton's still recovering. And Speak says, okay, don't worry. I'll go on without you. I'll go back to London, but don't worry. I won't um, talk to anybody until you can join me. And so Burton says, okay, great. I'll, I'll meet you there as soon as I can. 
Well, Speak decides instead, as soon as he gets to London, like the very next day, he goes to see the head, the president of the Royal Geographical Society. And he tells him that he believes he's found the source of the Nile. And this guy believes him and really likes Speak. Again, Speak is sort of and this, he doesn't have any children. Um, Murchison is his name. And he sort of looks on, um, speak very affectionately and is really impressed with what he's done. And he says, we have to send you back as commander of your own expedition, which is everything that speak has always wanted. So Burton gets back a few weeks later and is like completely bewildered and shocked by what has happened. You know, he, he realizes that, oh, Speak is not my friend. I'm not his mentor. He's my rival. He just had, he just, it hadn't even occurred to him, but now everything's been taken away. So, so Speak is going to be given the next expedition and Burton doesn't have one. So, so he doesn't have any way to go back and try to, try to discover the source of the Nile, something he had been trying with everything he had to do for years. And during this time, Burton's reputation just kind of plummeted. Like he, no one wanted anything to do with him. That's right. So he was just, he just kind of spun deeper and deeper. And he, as he sort of then realizes how Speak feels about him and, and then, yeah, he, the Royal Geographical Society kind of drops him. He's just an outcast and he's bitter and he's angry and sort of, and again, he's at his best when he has a challenge, when he has something he wants to solve or wants to accomplish, something big, and he ha- and that had been taken away from him. All right, so Speed goes back to Lake, uh, what was the name? The Nianza. The Nianza. Nianza, uh-huh. and he names it Lake Victoria. That's what it's, we know it now. Uh, how did that expedition go without Burton? So it was, you know, Beak had always been criticizing Burton first, just sort of to himself and then to, you know, his family members and then sort of to a wider array of people criticizing Burton at every point and criticizing his leadership skills. Now Speak finds that he's in charge and he has to make all of these very difficult decisions. And the same things happen to him. They, they get there. So the first person he knows he has to have with him is Bombay. And Bombay is absolutely willing and ready to go. And then he takes a man named James Grant. And James Grant is just, again, it's a story of complete opposites. He speaks complete opposite. So he, he's a really good guy, very genuinely modest, happy for Speak to have the limelight and just kind of waiting um, to, to help however he could. But again, quickly they go in, there are desertions, they're starving, but they are able to make it to the northern reaches of the Nyanza. And again, they don't really have the proof that they need. They don't aren't able to spend enough time. They they don't have all the um, scientific measurements. But Speak is e- even more than ever convinced that this is the source. Okay, so he's convinced, and he's building up his brand basically in England. Like I'm the guy who discovered the source of the Nile, and a lot of most of the scientists and the researchers they they bought into it. like yeah, this, this guy did it. But then there came a point when they started to realize that Speak was all hat and no cattle. <laughs> what happened? Like what? What kind of what kind of led to his downfall when people started to realize this guy isn't really what he says he is? Well, he just became he's sort of more and more manic. So first of all, he gets back and 
the Royal Geographical Society, you know, had been founded in 1830. It was, was the, you know, most respected, most powerful scientific institution in Great Britain. And they had this vaunted journal where they would publish the, the reports of the men that they would send on these expeditions. And Burton had, had taken up a whole issue after, after their last expedition. But speak, A, he hates to write. And B, he really wants as much attention as he can get. So instead of giving all of his information to the Royal Geographical Society, which had sponsored him, which had sent him there, he decides he's going to publish it with Blackwood's Magazine, which was a very well-known magazine at that time because he thinks he'll get more readership and, and more money and more attention that way. And so the Royal Geographical Society is outraged and he gives them just sort of a poorly written, poorly researched, um, small report. And so he's, he's broken ties that way. He also is very critical of everyone. There was some, there's a poor guy named Patrick who had agreed to try to help resupply um, Speak and Grant's expedition. And he had gone through hell and back. He had lost two men on the trip. He and his wife was with him, had nearly died. And when he meets up with Speak, Speak's angry that he wasn't there earlier and is is telling people that, oh yeah, I think he's involved in the slave trade, which which he was not at all. So he ruins his reputation. And so people are starting to say, what, you know, who is this guy? And, um, and w- w- what does he want? You know, we, he, he's sort of dangerous. And so he also is kind of cast out. So he and Burton are, are just on their own. Yeah. The, the writing sample that Speak gave, you, you, you quoted in the book, it didn't make any sense at all. No. Like I, I read it like three times. This is, this is like my my eight year old could write better than this. I know, I know. And and one of these strange twists of fate that happens in history sometimes. So so out of desperation, Blackwood, this publisher, he's like he, he he's like Speak has this great story to tell, but he can't write it. He just can't write it to to save himself. So they decide to hire a quote unquote editor. Is really a ghostwriter for Speak to work with. And as luck would have it, the guy's last name was Burton. <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, I think it's a great example. I mean, it speaks like he had this vain ambition, but his envy and resentment eventually led to his downfall. Yeah, it did. You know, he, as often happens, I think when people are very arrogant, they are very, also very insecure and he couldn't take any criticism. He just wanted to be lauded all the time. And yeah, that, that it turns into this sort of festering resentment against everyone. And you find yourself sort of cut off. Okay. So speak, he, he's technically discovered the source of the Nile, but he pretty much lucked into it. He's also at this time, he's alienating the exploration community with how he's conducting himself. And you know, meanwhile, you also have Burton, who's on the outs in that community. He still believes Lake Tanganyia is the source of the Nile. So he and Speak decide to argue this out in a public debate. But Speak unexpectedly dies uh, before the debate. And it's a, really, it's a really dramatic, mysterious twist in the story. And uh, we're gonna, we'll save that for readers of your book. So if you want to know what happens there, get the book. But what's interesting about Speak's posthumous legacy is even though, you know, Speak is the first European to discover the source of the Nile, I had never heard of Speak until I read your book. But I did know who Burton was. 
So why does history remember burden, but overlook speak? I think, um, well, part of it is, you know, Speak died then soon after and, and he just wasn't the personality that Burton was. You know, I, I wrote a book about Theodore Roosevelt and I always found it interesting. You know, Roosevelt used to say himself, if you don't have the great event, you don't have the great leader. So he really wanted to be president during a war or like, you know, the Great Depression or some big event where he could galvanize the nation. And he didn't have that. But yet we remember him. I mean, he's one of the most well-known presidents in our nation's history. Why? I think because of his personality. And it was the same with Burton. He was just absolutely fascinating. You know, he, he, he was just this, I mean, you, you love to talk about him, right? He was off the charts brilliant. And he also, he wrote so much. We have all of his writings. He was an unbelievably gifted writer. He spoke all of these languages. He did all of these other things. And so he is very memorable. So yes, you're right. There, there are dozens of biographies about Richard Burton. There's only one biography of Speak. And it was written, I think, in the 70s, the 1970s. So almost 100 years after his death. And it's a really very slim biography. We don't we don't know that much about um, his childhood or anything. So there's just there's not that much to say about him. Yeah, he's he's, he's all hat no cattle. Yeah, yeah. And uh, after this, Bombay had a yeah, after these expeditions, he had a good. He did a lot of expeditions and exploring and map making. Correct. Yes, it, you know it's incredible. It's again, it's one of these things you think I can't believe I've never heard of. I mean. Again, I worked at National Geographic for six years. We talked every day about exploration and about Africa. I had never heard of Sidi Mubarak Bombay. So Sidi Mubarak Bombay, not only was he with Burton and Speak uh, going to the Tanganyika and then with Speak going to the Nyanza, he was with Speak and Grant when Speak came back to go to the Nyanza again. He was with Henry Morton Stanley when he found David Livingston, which was on the banks of the Tanganyika. And that, you know, the famous Dr. Livingston, I presume, Bombay was there. Bombay helped make that happen. And then he, along with the explorer Vernie Lovett Cameron, became the first to cross the entire continent from east to west, sea to sea. So he, I mean, he, it it would be difficult to argue that anyone did more for the mapping of East Africa the continent of his birth, then City Mubarak Bombay, but very few people have heard his name. Well, Candace, this has been a great conversation. Where can people go to learn more about the book? Which I think I told you earlier before we got on, this, this is the best book I've read so far this year. Thank you so much. It really means a lot to me. So it's available everywhere where books are sold. And I do have a website, candacemillard.com, and I'm on you know Twitter and Instagram and all those things. So, But I really, really appreciate it. I really enjoy the conversation. Thank you so much for your interest in the book. Thanks, Candace. It's been a pleasure. My guest today was Candace Millard. Her new book is River of the Gods, Genius, Courage, and Betrayal in the Search for the Source of the Nile. It's available on Amazon.com and bookstores everywhere. You can find more information about her work at her website, CandaceMillard.com. Also check out our show notes at aom.is slash river, where you can find links to resources where you can delve deeper into this topic.
Well, that wraps up another edition of the A1 Podcast. Make sure to check out our website at artofmanless.com where you can find our podcast archives as well as thousands of articles written over the years about pretty much anything you'd think of. And if you'd like to enjoy ad-free episodes of the A1 Podcast, you can do so on Stitcher Premium. Head over to stitcherpremium.com, sign up, use code MANLESS at checkout for a free month trial. Once you're signed up, download the Stitcher app on Android iOS and you can start enjoying ad-free episodes of the A1 Podcast. And if you haven't done so already, I'd appreciate if you take one minute to give us a review on Apple Podcasts or Spotify. It helps out a lot. And if you've done that already, thank you. Please consider sharing the show with a friend or family member who you think would get something out of it. As always, thank you for the continued support. Until next time, it's Brett McKay. Remind you not to listen to the podcast, but put what you've heard into action. Thank you.